Hey everyone, it's Luke. This week on the show, we welcome Daisy Zavala, a young journalist who has done a number of impressive things. First of all, she withstood the onslaught from my editor's pen in order to write the incredible piece for Range, essential but unprotected, a couple weeks ago for us. She's also a graduating senior, still in school, down at the WSU Murrow School of Journalism. She's a baby, guys, but also a badass. I had her on to talk about two things. First, the story itself, which is linked in the show notes. If you haven't read it yet, please take a look. It's a story about the tremendous hardship migrant workers have endured this year to keep all of us fed and how few protections exist for them even today. We weren't the only outlet that got this story. The Inlander published the same day we did and the spokesman followed a few days after. And I also want to shout out KXLY News 4 for inviting Daisy on to talk about the story during their 6 o'clock news. All of those stories got the basic facts right, and I'm glad it was so widely covered. But I'm biased, and I think that in addition to the facts, our story had a level of nuance and depth that those other stories didn't have. And there's a very specific reason for that, dear listener. Daisy herself. So how did Daisy get the depth she got for this story? Well, one, she was able to speak with the farm workers and family members in their native Spanish. We talk about the importance of this in detail in the interview, but it's something we've talked about in different contexts before. An essential part of journalism is helping people who might otherwise stay silent get comfortable with the idea of speaking out. Being able to converse with that person in their native language. I can't think of a higher or better example of meeting someone where they are on their own terms than that. And two, as the child of immigrant parents who grew up in Wenatchee, the self-styled Apple capital of the world, Daisy has been a farm worker herself. So when she offers details like this. The thing about summers is, you know, the temperature gets so hot, but in the mornings it's so cold. You know, you're up there and at that time in the morning, early morning, the ladders are cold, you know, your hands are freezing. And so you have maybe two sweaters to protect your skin from pesticides, you know, and then at some point it just gets too hot that, you know, you take maybe one off, but you still have to keep, you know, your skin protected from all the chemicals in the sun. So you, you're working there in a hundred degree weather with like a hoodie, you know, and a hat oh. or a bandana. And so it's just, it's hard work to me personally. It really bothers me when people call it unskilled work, you know, because yeah. of everything that it takes, you know, for somebody to be able to do that type of work. That kind of detail can't just come from interviewing people. It comes from having felt the piercing cold of an aluminum ladder rung at three in the morning as you scale it. It comes from being bent under 100 plus degree temperatures later that same day and still feeling like you need to keep your hoodie on because I guess heat stroke is preferable to getting pesticides in your pores. And then you add the pandemic to that. So it's incredibly grueling work. It's not high paying work. And there's a there's a fear of retribution or at least a perception of retribution. And that's during normal times. The last year we've been living through a pandemic. So like what extra sort of stress had been put on farm workers during COVID? They were just worried, you know, about their own life. Oh, it's brutal. For farm workers, this decision wasn't about just being safe versus taking a risk. It was about their personal safety versus their family's ability to survive. These are primary breadwinners in many cases. So it wasn't weighing risk versus safety. It was weighing life versus life. Here's Daisy talking about a conversation she had with a independent union of farm workers called Familias Unidas por la Justicia. One of the things that the president of the Familias Unidas por la Justicia union said that they'd rather work shoulder to shoulder you know, than complain because they're worried primarily about making enough money just to survive. Have that in the back of your mind next time you rip into a honey crisp. We're almost celebrating a year of range and in that time some themes have emerged. The plight of workers across the spectrum is one. And when we talk about farm work, that theme collides with one of our other big themes, the monstrousness of our immigration system and how it exploits foreign workers by holding them in a kind of limbo tied to their employment. Can we really expect folks to stand up to their employer when that employer holds the power to affect their visa status? Or if they're undocumented, even worse? A third big theme is the necessity for journalism and journalists who understand the communities they report on. Back to the language thing, here's Daisy talking about what she thinks it meant to her sources that she could speak directly to them in the language they were most comfortable. 
I think being able to do it myself and not have to rely on a translator or, you know, an intermediary that would have to translate back and forth, I think allowed me to establish like a relationship with my source and not even just with the source. Like it, it allowed me to establish a human to human connection with whoever I was speaking with. A fourth big theme and the last one I'll subject you to today, I promise, is the myth of journalistic objectivity. The second part of our episode deals with that. You've heard me rail like a philosophy major about how everyone has inherent perspectives, opinions, and biases, and in pretending we don't, pretending there is an attainable journalistic standard of pure objectivity isn't just epistemologically incorrect. It actually serves to entrench dominant power structures. Think about what an uneven playing field a single worker or a single person would have against the might of a huge corporation or the might of the federal government. And pretending that they're on a level playing field, treating them as objectively equal combatants in a dispute, doesn't just obscure the reality of the power dynamics, it preferences the status quo. I've always thought it was profoundly strange that a lot of journalists love the axiom that journalism ought to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. It doesn't seem like there's much afflicting of the comfortable happening under the traditional model. And let me be clear about one thing here. You can be fair without being objective. Fairness and objectivity are not the same thing. And actually owning your perspective, in my mind, is a more open way to achieve fairness. But there's another thing that objectivity does to people who come from diverse backgrounds who want to report about their communities because they have experienced the very trauma they want to shed light on firsthand. It sort of suggests that there's no place in journalism for them. Here's Daisy talking about reporting on farm workers last summer in Quincy, Washington, and being overcome with emotion, so overcome that she had to sit down on the side of the road. I was just sitting there, like people driving by, giving me, you know, thinking, why is this girl sitting on this, you know, on the sidewalk? But I'm just thinking, my parents came here, right? And they were just as invisible, right? Like you mentioned to Americans as these people are now, you know, like I just can't look at these stories without acknowledging that. One of the reasons she felt overcome on that particular day is that she was reporting very close to a farm where her uncle had died in a workplace accident. Daisy talks about the guilt she felt for feeling the feelings she felt that day. She says it made her feel like an imposter as a reporter. And there's a good reason why she felt that way. There's a certain model of journalism, the model that is overwhelmingly taught in J school and which occupies a central place in the American conception of media that says Daisy's lived experience is not an asset. It actually compromises her. That model might conclude that a different, less directly impacted person ought to go cover that kind of story. I feel very differently. I feel that a journalism that is blind to emotion, dismissive of lived experience, and walled off from firsthand understandings of the impacts of trauma is an impoverished form of journalism. Human experience is inextricably subjective, and therefore a journalism that strives to strip subjectivity is a fundamentally inhuman endeavor. All right, that's enough for me. We'll, there is so much more in this interview, and we'll get to it right after this. But first... Briefly, if that little tirade I just went on sounds cool to you, if you like it, consider supporting Range. We keep all of our content free for everyone always because we believe that a person's ability to understand, interact, and make change in their community should not be contingent on their ability to pay for news and analysis. It is an ideologically pure sentiment, and I will go to my grave fighting for it. Well, yes, ma'am, this is the hill I'm willing to die on. It is not, it is not, however, the easiest way to pay our bills. That's why we need people who believe in this mission, who see the value, and who also have the means to support it, to step up and support it. If that's you, head on over to rangemedia.co slash subscribe. That's rangemedia.co slash subscribe to pitch in. And on that note, today's episode is brought to you by Naaman Cordova, Juan Moss, and Lynn Cunningham. Lynn just happens to be my middle school best friend's mom. These are normal people like you, supporting local journalism. Lynn, Juan, Naaman, everyone else, thank you so much. All right, self-promotion done. Reporter Daisy Zavala on farm workers and journalism, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range.
Episode 31, The Fruits of Their Labor. Daisy Zavala is a graduating senior at the Murrow School of Journalism at Washington State University and the author of Our Investigation into the Dangers Faced by Farm Workers During COVID, Essential but Unprotected. Daisy, thank you so much for coming on Range. Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me, you know, to have this very important conversation. So I guess maybe we just start with a little bit of scene setting because we're going to be talking about not just the story, but then journalism itself in kind of the second half here and how we even heard about Eduardo and Lara's story. And then we can dive into kind of why you wanted to take it on and what you ultimately found. But so many things in my life, uh, it started with the desire for delicious food. So in December, an organizer and activist in town named Jennifer Mesa had a tamale fundraiser And at the time, she said it was a fundraiser just for a farm worker who had gotten really, really sick on the job. And that was all she really said. And so I went over and bought some tamales from her. And then a couple weeks later, she said, hey, there's actually a story here about how and why he contracted COVID. And she wanted to know if we wanted to talk to the family. And I really, I've been wanting Range to start doing original reporting for a while. And I'd been having conversations with a bunch of journalism folks, including my former colleague, Lisa Wanainen, who's now a professor down at WSU. So I asked her if she knew anybody. She approached you. And so in that initial discussion with Lisa, what drew you to the story? It's a topic that I have been following, you know, since I was covering the legislature through the Spokesman Review last session. Yeah. And particularly because I come from that background, right? I, my parents were farm workers. I worked in the field myself, you know, every summer. Wow. Like that's what kids in central Washington, you know, who are children of like immigrant farm workers do every summer. And so I feel like I have years of experience, you know, equivalent to maybe somebody that might have that beat just because I lived it, you know, I grew up with it. So when I heard that, um, when Lisa told me about it, you know, I thought I can tell the story, you know, in the way that it needs to be told. Like this story came to me, right? As a journalist, you know, you seek stories out or sometimes they just kind of land on you, if that makes sense. And at the same time, when Lisa had reached out to me, I got a DM on Twitter from Nikki Lockwood, who had housed the couple for a bit, um, or Laura, um, Eduardo's wife. Um, and so, you know, I just started seeing a lot of things kind of falling into place with that story. So you said you've done farm work. What's that work like? It's grueling. It's honestly the hardest summer, you know, hardest months ever. <laughs> you wake up, you know, sometimes you wake up at 3 a.m., you know, because these orchards are not in the middle of town. You know, you have to commute. Yeah. You are there sometimes until like midday and or until 1 p.m., you know. The thing about summers is, you know, the temperature gets so hot, but in the mornings, it's so cold. You know, you're up there and at that time in the morning, early morning, the ladders are cold. You know, your hands are freezing. And so you have maybe two sweaters to protect your skin from pesticides, you know, and then at some point it just gets too hot that, you know, you take maybe one off, but you still have to keep you know, your skin protected from all the chemicals in the sun. So you, you're working there in a hundred degree weather with like a hoodie, you know, and a hat or a bandana. And so it's just, it's hard work to me personally. It really bothers me when people call it unskilled work, you know, because of everything that it takes, you know, for somebody to be able to do that type of work. Well, and it's the work that allows us to have those apples like down the street from where we live at a grocery store, as opposed to having to go pick them ourselves. No, exactly. And I think, you know, that's the issue because you go to the grocery store and you see maybe, for example, a pound of um, cherries and it goes for like $10, but farm workers are being paid for like buckets that are definitely more than one pound. It's maybe like 20 pounds, you know, and they're getting paid like $5 for a for, you know, 20 pounds of cherries. The majority of the cost of your cherry or your apple is not, it's not the pay that they're giving the farm worker. It's other, it's other aspects and probably profit ultimately. Yeah. And like, you know, yes, it goes through like warehouses and packing. And so there's other costs, but 20 pounds for $5, you know, and then one pound goes for like $10, you know, that's. It's a markup. Yeah. So we started talking and 
you decided to take the story on despite the, you know, the workload you've got at school and stuff. So what, what did you find as you started reporting this out? Yeah, I think it was hard to really be surprised because working, you know, in the summer and having family members who are still working there, you really get to see, you know, like the dynamic of employers and the employees and kind of really just have to do what they say, you know, like I've worked in places where, you know, the growers would um, tell the workers that they're only going to pay them like a laughable amount of money, but nobody really refutes it because at the end of the day, you know, they're worried about being hired for the next season. You know, they're worried about making enough money this week to pay their bills. So you kind of just roll with it and you kind of get to see that there really is no oversight with state agencies. And I think that was really the most striking to just hear from directly right from the department that they wait for complaints for them to (laughs) investigate into, you know, especially right now, you know, in this pandemic where, you know, we know that the farm workers, either they don't feel like they can, you know, make these complaints, even if they do it anonymously, they feel like their employer is going to know. Yeah. They just don't know how the process works. So it's incredibly grueling work. It's not high paying work. And there's a there's a fear of retribution or at least a perception of retribution for any sort of getting out of line. And that's during normal times. The last year we've been living through a pandemic. So like what extra pressures as you were speaking with these farm workers and their families like Laura and then um, Ramon, who we'll talk about in a second, who's a, a union director who works directly with these populations. What did you what extra sort of stress had been put on farm workers during COVID? They were just worried, you know, about their own life. They're worried about still not making money. So one of the things that the president of the Familias Unidas por la Justicia union said that they'd rather work shoulder to shoulder, you know, than complain because they're worried primarily about making enough money just to survive. We also, we know that there are like disparities within the healthcare system, right? Yeah. And so there's not really much that they can do. Like they're just living in fear right now for the most part, right? I don't want to generalize, but you know, that's the situation that they have to deal with because nobody is enforcing that these companies really are sanitizing every hour, right? Or whatever um, the regulations stipulate. Nobody is making sure that this is happening. And so the workers themselves, you know, historically, they don't feel like they have the political clout to stand up to the employer or fight what the employer is telling them to do. So as you started reporting the story, one of the things that I, I love about reporting to the listeners, I apologize, this is going to be one of our nerdy journalism episodes. So uh, if you don't like those, don't turn it off because actually there's more interesting shit that Daisy's going to say. But I think about this a lot because so much of the way we get our information comes from reporters. And often, you know, even people that read the paper or watch the news don't always know how the sausage gets made. And so one of the things that's always fascinated me about the act of reporting is kind of how one source leads to another and how the questions you might ask one source point one reporter in one direction and another reporter in a different direction. I mean, this story, we had this story, we were working on it for a few weeks. The Inlander also published on the same day we did. And then the spokesman followed a couple days later. And factually, the stories were almost identical. But what was so fascinating was the different sources that came out of each story. And so how did that work for you? Was it mostly Jennifer and and Nikki sort of pointing you toward different people? Or how did you sort of pull together the sources you ended up pulling together for the story? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You follow the little threads that your sources give you, right? And so Jennifer mentioned these community members did this work, right, in terms of trying to help. And so you find out, you know, names, you figure out names. And then, I mean, I knew going into it that I would need to talk to somebody from Familias Unidas because they have been such fierce advocates for farm workers since the very beginning, right? They're the only independent union we have in this state for farm workers. And so when she told me that, oh, you know, there's also this union that's been helping. And so, you know, I was like, can you give me the contact? And, you know, she did. And I think that's when it really showed the importance of having bilingual reporters on staff because I was only able to talk to Ramon because I, you know, I speak Spanish or Laura. 
in depth yeah. because it, it already, I think it's hard enough to ask people to tell a stranger, right? Me as a journalist, I'm a stranger. These very difficult topics, right? It's hard to talk about it with strangers. Absolutely. You know, and so I think being able to do it myself and not have to rely on a translator or, you know, an intermediary that would have to translate back and forth, I think allowed me to establish like a relationship with my source and not even just with the source like it, it allowed me to establish a human to human connection yeah. with whoever I was speaking with and like you're saying that's hard enough to do in a normal situation and if you had to sort of translate that literally through an interpreter or through a third party that puts up a barrier these are populations that are historically rightly afraid to speak out for all the reasons we've talked about so there's like there's got to be a leap of faith on the that person's part to even talk about it in the first place then it would take an extra leap to be like oh some well-meaning white guy you know we're, i'm going to talk and we're going to put it through a translator and you know even assuming all parties have the right you know intentions at heart do i know for a fact that this translator is translating my language into english or whatever and vice versa in a way that's like direct and, and correct or are they making little assumptions it's like a telephone game except there's multiple languages involved and as i was reading the quotes you got from laura and ramon that really struck me how honest and how sort of close they were with you in a way that i didn't see in the other stories to be honest and laura was the only person that the other outlets quoted so i want to talk about finding ramon as well but it really does seem like you were able to develop a sense of rapport just from the mere fact that you were able to sort of come to them on their terms right like that's one of the things we learn in journalism is like try to go to the community and this is especially important as we talk about and as we've talked on this show about a number of times like not just parachuting into a community. Are you writing about the community or are you writing for the community? Are you extracting stories out of the community or are you writing these stories in such a way that it's going to help the community long-term, right? Like, are you doing damage by doing journalism? Yeah, and I think that's why it's really important, right, to acknowledge the importance of narratives and how you craft the story, right? Because I feel like a lot of the issues that, at least I'll just speak, you know, from my experience, because, you know, obviously I cannot, and I won't speak for every community of color, but yeah. we don't, historically, we just don't have a good relationship with the media. And that's because they don't really carry our stories, right? If we open a paper, we don't see like our needs. Or we don't see stories that affect us really. And then when we do, it's more so like they're reporting about us and not for us, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. You know, like you mentioned, and, and it's important to address that as well, I think. There were three different versions of the story by three local outlets, including us. And I've already sort of said that I like I felt like we got a little closer to the individual stories because you were able to sort of speak to people in the in the language they were most comfortable with. But one source that we had that nobody else had, and I want to talk about this, and you already sort of suggested it, is Ramon Torres from uh, Familias Unidas por la Justicia, an independent uh, farm worker union in, in central Washington, you went into this story knowing you wanted to speak with them. And then I heard you say that when you talked to Jennifer, Jennifer said they had already jumped in and were helping sort of the organizers in Spokane navigate um, stuff like LNI. So to me, that's an example of like, you have to know the subject in order to know who to talk to, right? And the fact that even just like you're saying, the fact that you've been a farm worker on the ground and done a little bit of farm worker reporting, you're just like, oh, I know that I need to talk to Familias Unidas. So talk to me about finding Ramon and then that, the conversation you guys had about what was going on and, and doing that in Spanish. I think it was perfect, right? It just happened and it's one of those things that just really fell into place because it ended up being that, you know, he himself, right, is also a farm worker. And so he was able to not only give the perspective as, you know, a union leader who's been out going to investigate what is happening in these fields, you know, when the states haven't been doing that themselves. Um, and so they're stepping in and like uh, carrying that load. And so that's important, but he was also able to, you know, say, you know, but this has been happening forever. And it just, I think, adds to know and understand that he himself is a farm worker, right? So he is still doing it. Absolutely. And the thing that also struck me as I was sort of doing, you know, once you get these reports in, you do a bunch of fact checking. And I should say that, like, this report was a team effort from... Daisy, it was, I helped with editing. 
But then we had three other editors look at this, right? So the act of journalism is a team effort and it takes a lot of people to get it right. So part of like the due diligence I did at the very beginning was like looking up Familias Unidas and seeing who are they? What are they all about? Like, are they well-respected? And in that process, I discovered, and I thought this, this part was fascinating. One of the services they provide to these communities is indigenous language translation to things like LNI. So like our state system, we've kind of hinted at, it's a state organization that's subject to state budgets. And so they like, they have to wait for people to make complaints. They don't go out and proactively that often look for violations. And that's one problem, but they have Spanish language interpretation services available. But a lot of these farm workers, and if I mispronounce these languages, please correct me, but like Mixteco and Atriki, like these are all like sort of indigenous native or languages to, you know, Mexico and the other parts of Latin America that we don't have translators for in Washington state. So one of the things this union does is just help these farm workers speak to people in languages they understand. It also sort of gets at the sense that like we think of farm workers as a homogenous population, like they're all Mexican or maybe we know that some of them come from Guatemala. And but obviously that means they all must speak Spanish. But the reality of this is so much more complex than that. And so I feel like there are layers of this that, you know, it was already a 2,500 word story. So it was long as hell to begin with. But like we could have just kept adding depth and depth and depth. It's not just that like you come to a strange place thousands of miles away from your home and you don't speak the language necessarily. It's like you also might be bunked with people that speak Spanish and you might speak an indigenous language. So you might not even be able to communicate super well with, with your fellow farm workers. So that's an additional layer of isolation that might happen. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that just really highlights that there are so many, many people, right, that they're not able to access resources. And especially if they're coming in under like H-2A visa and they don't understand the the American system, right? And their employer doesn't tell them you can file a complaint because they might not benefit them, whatever it is. But they just have to wade through so many, so many obstacles. Yeah. So what's been the emotional impact the story has had for you writing it? I mean, and and this is hard to even say, but I just feel like it needs to be said. You know, I'm about to go into it right now. But when I say (laughs) this, I feel like, you know, I run risk of people thinking that I am not a journalist, that I'm more of an advocate or whatever. You write because I'm just not following maybe some of the tenants in journalism that I frankly think they're, they're outdated Yeah, decades ago. Like I even couldn't work as a journalist. Right. So I wasn't part black people weren't part of the decision-making either, you know? And so we journalists of color have to abide by all these things, but you know, when it comes to this story and stories like this, that I've, you know, taken time to report, they just, they really take a piece of me with it because I feel like I know Eduardo and I feel like I know Laura Mm. they're not just this stranger this person who got dealt a bad hand it's like they're my parents they're my uncle they're my family right because I have family members still do this type of work right and so there's just no way that I could ever separate that you know, even just thinking, like I followed farm worker rallies in the summer, right? And the first city was in Quincy. Yeah. And that's where we worked all the time, you know, and that's actually where one of my uncles, he passed away in a work accident. Oh God. And so it was just really emotional to be there again and be reporting on that topic and remembering to like being 16 you know, 17, 18, getting ready to go to college. And, you know, in those summer months, I, I was in the fields, you know, just like many people are still in the fields, yeah. you know, right now, that's what, that's their life's work. Well, so interesting you bring up Quincy because like, I think of, when I think of Quincy, I think of that's how you get to the gorge if you're going to a concert. Yeah. Right. And so like <laughs> for a lot of folks, and this includes people on the west side of the state, people on the east side of the state, you converge on Quincy when you want to go see like some of the biggest concerts that come. It's a place I would, to be completely honest, I would never go unless I was going there for entertainment or for leisure. But as you, and as you're driving through, you see 
orchard after orchard, grapevines, everything is there. Apple orchards, stone fruit, stuff like that. Those workers are all kind of invisible in dominant culture and in, in most news coverage. And so um, it's fascinating to hear the reaction you have to the town of Quincy because mine is like completely different. I definitely feel like I had the reporting chops to report the story out myself, but I didn't want to in that way because I was thinking mostly about language stuff and, and, and making the sources feel comfortable. I was not thinking about the lived experience, whoever I might ultimately find you was going to have to add depth and richness to this story. And that's, that's really what came through. So like hearing you say that you were like, you know, reporting on farm worker rallies where your uncle had died. Holy shit, man. Like that must've been really hard. Yeah. I mean, even thinking about it right now, like I get a little emotional because it was a non-deadline story, I remember. And I mean, there wasn't a coffee shop open, right? So funny enough, um, one of the people that was there for the rally opened up a hotspot so I could send the photos. Oh, wow. <laughs> on my computer. Yeah. But, you know, but then after that, like I just sat there, you know, for a while. I just didn't want to drive back home. And I, I can't even describe the feeling, you know. I was just sitting there on the side of the road, like people driving by giving me, you know, thinking, why is this girl sitting on this, you know, on the sidewalk? But I'm just thinking my parents came here, right? And they were just as invisible, right? Like you mentioned to Americans as these people are now, you know, like I just can't look at these stories without acknowledging that. So what's, what's your ultimate takeaway from reporting the story? And wh- what's the thing that you hope people, even that, ha- that haven't had your lived experience, uh, get out of it? It's hard because I wish that, you know, you, as a journalist, you always wish like, oh, this is the piece that's going to maybe change this, right? But I think at least having an awareness that this is happening because it just, it gets so easily overlooked. People just don't know because it's just so easy to go by the produce and you don't have to, you know, ever think about how it got there. If you're aware, you know, that something's happening, support the farm workers in your community or in and around um, if you can, you know, in whatever way you can. On that note, if people want to help, is there a place they can donate or, or, or just what can what can people do if they if they want to help? Yeah, I there is the the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network. I think I'm getting it wrong. <laughs> it's more, yeah, I'll um, put it in the show notes. So there, we will have ways that people can get involved uh, in the show notes of what you're currently listening to. It'll be like magic. It seems like we don't know what we're talking about right now, but when by the time you listen to this, <laughs> it'll be it'll be in the show notes like magic. Yeah. So I'm sure that the listeners can like tell that I like feel tremendously proud of this story. And I feel like a tremendous sense of solidarity and camaraderie with you as a, as a writer, Daisy. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about is like some, another meta journalism episode. And I was only joking, like people really like these episodes. I think people like understanding how the sausage gets made. These are some of my favorite episodes to do because we often, you know, you, you live with both the freedom and the structure of whatever you're working in. And it becomes kind of like the water you swim in and you start, you stop noticing it sometimes. Uh, But then when you take a moment to step back and really reflect and discuss, you can be like, oh, wow, this actually is pretty special. It's pretty amazing. Or this is pretty terrible, actually. And I've been living through a shitty situation. And so I guess the point is, I feel tremendously grateful that you were, you were able to find time to report out this story and you wanted to do it. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was a tweet thread you posted just a couple of days ago on March 9th. And it deals with your feelings of being a journalist of color, which we sort of already started sort of hinting around about earlier. But so it's six total tweets. Let me just say, to start with, like owning my own bias, like I think objective journalism is a myth. It's not real. It can't ever really be real. And if you try to create a objective constraints, you try to pretend you're objective or you set sort of ground rules, it tends to preference dominant culture, which in our context is white culture, right? So like what you're saying, I felt for my entire career is I was not a classically trained journalist. I kind of came to it by way of talking shit about music uh, on blogs and stuff. So I learned this all secondhand, but it always seemed a little 
fake to me. And then as I started having conversations with folks like you, it's like, oh, what we're really doing is reinforcing dominant culture by pretending any human can be perfectly objective, right? You can be fair, but objectivity is something else. When you put journalists in constraints like that, or anybody in constraints like that, there's a danger that like people who are doing really, really good work are going to get pushed out of that system. And so like you're at the very beginning of your career and listening to this tweet thread made me like tear up a little bit thinking about how hard it's been for you already, right? And you're not even out of school. So I wanted to do these, there's six total tweets. I'm going to read them out, but I'm going to take them in, in sort of groups. So you begin by saying, scorching take. Journalism has a longstanding history of disregarding stories from BIPOC communities. BIPOC means black, indigenous, and people of color for people who don't know. So our stories and concerns are sent to the inside, meaning like they're in the middle of the paper, not the front page, right? They're not the first thing you see when you pick them up reduced to a couple of inches or not even published at all. And why is this? It's because these stories don't fit into what editors value in news, which is fueled by white perspectives. Any narrative that falls outside of that is irrelevant, not newsworthy, unless it has to do with a crime that might affect these white communities, of course. So explain this dynamic to me and how you've seen it play out in a newsroom setting in real time. Yeah, it's such a prevalent thing and you know before I say anything I just want to also state like I would really hate for any of this to be taken personally right because at the end of the day I've worked with great and amazing editors but also sometimes they do things that they may not realize are actually causing this that I mentioned in the Twitter thread to happen and you know even as a student journalist you see this at a student paper like I saw this a lot where some, you know, some editors would be like, well, is that really news, you know, yeah. or why do we even care? You know, that kind of thing, right? The issue is, first of all, you don't see this as news because people of color are only news to you when something bad happens. There just needs to be something horrible happening, right? Or a protest or a rally for you to cover communities of color, you know? And so going through that as a student, because I joined late, right? I, I joined as a sophomore in my second semester. And mm. so so many times that I just thought, I'm not in the right industry, mm. you know? Like maybe I am not a journalist because in class, they're talking about being objective and that just doesn't make sense to me. It just, it never did. And I felt so much relief in this summer and this past year when all these prominent journalists of color were coming out and saying, you know, objectivity is a myth. It's not real, yeah. you know? And so on the other hand, in the experience that I've had um, with professional newsrooms, it seems like sometimes when I would pitch certain stories, they would just be okay or brushed aside or you know, they would allow me to do it, but I just never felt like they were given the, I don't know the word, it just didn't feel like these stories were respected because I didn't even really get in much feedback in the yeah. editing, you know, kind of like, okay, publish. And not even just my own stories, but like seeing what's on the paper and what's on the front page and what's on the inside, right? Yep. And so when we talk about how we're, we were talking about perspectives earlier and, you know, the crafting of a narrative, if your background is very limited because you're white, you're from an academic background, let's say you have a certain perspective, right? And so the sources that you think about reaching out to might be different than what somebody else who has a different lived in experience might think of. Yeah. And so then the facts, you know, they might be the same, but then the context and the narrative is different because the difference of sources. Absolutely. When I even think about that, like it's white culture is dominant culture. It's also the culture of power in this country. So it's all of those things mixed together. But when I even think about it in, in contexts where it's all white people on all sides, the preference is still given to power, right? So like we have, our newspapers have business sections. They don't have worker sections. I think about this all the time. It's like, so when you go out to talk about a new business and, and this has been happening a lot in Spokane because we're getting our second Amazon fulfillment center now. It's like the story is about the business, not about the workers. So who's reporting about the workers and do, do workers get reported on at all? And the answer in my experience is usually no. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we rely as journalists, obviously we rely on sources of power, right? Yeah. Um, and historically, 
minorities and people of color, we don't have access to be able to be in those positions, you know? So who you're talking to is only presenting part of the story. And actually, I had an issue with people, and I I still kind of do my farm worker stories. At first, they were like, okay, this is business. This is business news. And it was really hard for me to be like, oh, yeah, this is business news, right? Because I was talking to the workers. (laughs) Yeah. And so, like, it was just weird because in my mind, business reporting is, about the business and companies and so i was like no i don't want to do business reporting you know but then we think about it like i am doing business reporting but it's from the other angle right it's you know within the agriculture business but it's it's about the workers because they're the ones that are doing the job and they're the ones that are facing any any type of consequences this next one I wanted to take by itself because this is the one that actually broke my heart. So you continue, it's unfair to BIPOC communities and journalists that stories centered on our concerns and perspectives are deemed unimportant. These are our stories and they are important. As a journalist, I can tell you how exhausting it is to work somewhere you feel you're not valued. So maybe talk about that. What is the responsibility of power in this case, like the editorial structure, the editors, the people's bosses? Like what is the responsibility to mentor people of any background? But then additionally, like what is the special responsibility we have to people who come from underprivileged backgrounds? In my case, I grew up poor. And in, you know, in your case, we've talked about, you know, growing up the child of immigrants and living in, in Wenatchee and, and then starting journalism late because this is another thing that when you're a first generation student, it's like, what can I even do? Like what, what's even open to me? Then I think about how easily people wash out of journalism if they ever get their first shot in journalism in the first place. It's like the number of journalism majors that end up in PR is like astronomical, right? There are way more journalists working in PR than actually working in journalism. So the thing that made me sad was that I feel like we, we could lose your voice in this thing that we need so desperately voices like yours to be lifted up, not squelched. So just talk about that experience. Yeah, I think it's hard to say exactly what these editors should be doing because I just feel like there's a lot of things that are lacking in journalism school um, in terms of training journalists now. We're still holding on to that idea, especially of objectivity. And so we're training the new journalists to still abide by that. And so speaking just from my experience, I didn't feel like I could report the way that I'm reporting now, like, you know, a year and a half ago. Because yeah. uh, I was trying so hard to just fit into what a journalist is supposed to do, mm-hmm. You're right? Be impartial, be objective, no voice, just facts, you know? And so when I look back at some of the stories that I have done, they're just missing so much more. It's like... Yeah half of the truth because I was trying so hard. But, you know, editors and any media company really should be ready to mentor their interns and not just, I mean, obviously they're expecting them to work, right? And so there's that expectation, but you shouldn't have those expectations without treating your intern like, you know, a human being, like just checking up and seeing where they're at because, you know, just throwing somebody in and expecting them to know exactly how you want things done, you know, it's really hard. And then that is, you know, magnified when we talk about journalists of color. And so, you know, editors might not even think they want to have, right, a diverse staff, but they're not ready to do what it takes to make sure that they stay there. You know, that the journalists feel comfortable enough pitching stories, writing, and that they're happy with what they're producing and that they're happy in the environment that they're in because yeah. there, there's just no you know, efforts to retain any journalists of color really that I've seen. So I don't, I mean, that's a pretty controversial statement, Daisy. Do you want, you want interns to feel like humans? So I don't know, I mean, <laughs> do you think that's really fair to ask of uh, <laughs> higher ups? Yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like, you know, we forget that you know, these interns are like college kids, you know, we're, for the most part, you know, we're still trying to figure out what we want to be, we're trying to figure out what we want to do. And I just don't think it's fair, you know, to be like, well, if you don't know, then why are you here? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I get that for sure. So the, the last two, and this is where you go into full media criticism mode. Um, also, very un daily reporter-ish of you. 
You say, I understand that every outlet deliberates on what they want to publish, and that's their right. But let's stop acting like we don't equate whiteness with objectivity. This happens so often, and it's BS. Let's acknowledge that the white perspective is not the only perspective, and it shouldn't be what dominates what we consider to be newsworthy. So how how do you fix that? I don't know. I mean, what, like I literally had this conversation with Sean Vestal who works at the spokesman where you interned over the summer. Like in the, he was like, I don't know how to get fewer old white people in the paper. And he did say that the younger reporters of color are just from diverse backgrounds in general that like, he feels like maybe the young millennials or the zoomers like less content to put up with bullshit, which is good. The question that remains in my mind is, is that desire to change the system going to be tolerated by the dominant culture or the people that exist in these newsrooms still. And so I guess, I don't know, do you have any thoughts about that? You know, assuming this tweet thread would have gone on, is there any sort of prescription you are going to sort of say like, hey, here's what I think we need to do next? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not going to happen overnight, you know, and you can't stop at only making sure that you're hiring people of color in reporter positions because if the editorial group still remains the same, right? It's only one perspective. It's just white men. Then you're not going to get anywhere because there's only so much that reporters can do, right? And when you're already faced with all these things, there's just so many things that journalists of color have to deal with even when it comes to advocating for maybe a shift in the way media outlets do things because at least for me, a lot of times it's felt like, okay, should I fight this fight or should I just do what I need to do to get the story out? You know, if I say something, are they going to think I'm not a journalist, not a good journalist? Are they going to not allow me to seek these kinds of stories out? Um, and mainly because when I was working for my student paper, there was this, and I, and I don't think they meant it in a, you know, bad way, <laughs> but ultimately they had told me uh, because the situation was, I'm just going all over the place. I'm so sorry. It's fine. But the situation was that I had written a story about this girl and she was undocumented. And so she had started this workshop um, where you just go do art and you like de-stress and whatever. And, you know, before I left, I, I knew exactly what the headline and the subhead was going to be. But the next day it was changed because of space, right? We know that it needs to be like a right. It happens. Yeah. yeah. The headline read, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like art for the undocumented, you know? And I was just like, the undocumented what? You know? I thought it was very dehumanizing. And so, like, I was talking to somebody about this and, like, I, I still don't know, but the only thing that I remember is them telling me, don't give these people too much press. Wow, really? It's just hard, right? Yeah. Because even now when I think about it, I'm sure they didn't mean it the way that it came out. But to me, it sounds like, you know, when you say these people, it's just a story about this girl who isn't documented. And she did this amazing thing where she started workshops through like an organization yeah. in, in the, in the university. You know, I, I just think about that. And I think right now I'm starting to become more vocal again, but for months I was just like, okay, I need to not say anything. I can't retweet this on Twitter or I can't like this because then, you know, maybe somebody's going to think I'm not a real journalist and I'm so scared of that because if I lose credibility, then how am I going to be able to tell these stories? Like who's going to publish them if, you know, they're like, oh yeah, her, she's, she's not a journalist. The other thing that I think about is there's a real danger that newsrooms are going to sort of get the hint post say George Floyd or, or whatever that like there needs to be sort of skin tone diversity in, in their newsrooms. There's like tons of psychological papers, like business psychology stuff. That's like you hire people that remind you of yourself, right? When you're a manager, you tend to hire and then promote people that remind you of yourself. So if they do this uncritically and it becomes sort of like a quota system, aren't they just going to hire people who might have black or brown skin, but who only do the just the facts stuff and are content or have been sort of trained or sort of subjugated to their community's feelings in favor of just covering city hall the way a white reporter would cover city hall. Right. And so if that happens, are we actually any better off than we were before? I don't know. If you're only stopping right at, hiring people of color because they're people of color and you're not training staff to really work with community members yeah. or um, 
you know, really analyzing how you're reporting stories and like, what are the stories that you're putting out? Then again, you're not going to get anywhere. We're going to be where we are now, where the media outlets um, generally, right, um, local and national, like kind of fall short in really addressing stories that communities of color care about. So we're coming up on an hour and we've got, we've sort of done a really good job of outlining the problem and it sounds like you're you're re- resolute in uh, continuing to to be a journalist, so I don't have to like convince you to stick around because we need your voice. So I'll I'll leave that off. <laughs> but the the question I ask everybody, and it strikes me that this question is is more or less important depending on the person I'm talking to. This is such a hopeless time for journalism in general, or just such an uncertain time. And it's been you know the seeds of the the decline of journalism started 20 years ago when you were like three years old or whatever. <laughs> What gives you hope in this moment for yourself, for your community, for the, the career you want to do in the, in the future? And what, what gives you hope right now? I ask myself that all the time. Really? Because it's hard. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I already know and I'm so committed to journalism that I, I really can't see myself doing anything else because every time I'm like, no, like I'm done, you know, I can't do this anymore because, you know, it's, it's just hard being in a newsroom environment, you know, where I don't feel like I'm allowed to do what I like, I know needs to be done with the story. Um, but somehow I just always keep coming back. And so, you know, actually I think it has to do with the people that I talk to because a lot of times with the, the kind of story that I do, it just ends with them just even saying like a small thank you for even just talking to them, mm-hmm. you know, for even just reaching out to them. A lot of the people that I've, um, you know, spoken to when it, you know, when it has to do with the stories about farm workers or underrepresented communities, I'm the first media people, like person that they've ever, ever spoken wow. to. So it's really, really important work. Have you, last thing quickly, have you caught up with Eduardo and Laura recently? Or how are they doing down down in Mexico? I haven't been able to, um, but I want to. I did see her post on on the article. Yeah. When it was shared, I think by Jennifer. I don't know. Laura Laura is just so amazing because like I noticed even just talking to her, she was always so thankful to um all the community members that helped her out. Mm. And she was so conscious of that they're in the position they are now with the help that they got because of the hard work from people. And I mean, one thing that I, I always keep thinking back to, you know, when I just zone out or whatever, is just her saying, like, she's not leaving the U.S. with a bitter experience or taste in her mouth because, yes, she did go through a lot of trauma, yeah. <laughs> right, with her husband and what happened. But she also got to meet Jennifer and Nikki and all these amazing women and people who just dedicated so much of their time to get them the help that they needed because the state wasn't doing anything the company wasn't doing anything and so getting justice is just it's so hard you know yeah well daisy zavala thank you so much for the work you do thanks for writing for us here at range and good luck passing your last semester of college now (laughs) yeah yeah i have midterms this week and last week and it's just been brutal well thanks for thanks for taking an hour to have the technical difficulties we had then have a full 59 minute conversation so appreciate it take care well thank you so much um and keep being amazing (laughs) (laughs) thanks daisy all right see ya bye thanks again to daisy for coming on this is not the last you've heard of her within the virtual pages or the virtual ear holes of range this episode was edited by Connor Bacon and I, and the theme music, as always, is Simmental. Have a good week, everyone. Bye. Bye.